Uh, outside the BBC building in London, there's a statue of George Orwell. George Orwell, of course, was the famed author of such books as 1984 and Animal Farm. Uh, he was an outspoken critic of authoritarianism and censorship. Uh, so behind this statue of George or Orwell in London, in front of the BBC, there's a quote. It says, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. This is a quote from a preface to Animal Farm. It's an unpublished preface, but it is, you know, in his writings nonetheless. I wonder how many of you have ever read or know the basic outline of the book Animal Farm. Uh, basically, it's a satire about the Res Russian Revolution. Uh, when the, the, I guess the Bolsheviks were, uh, the socialists were overthrowing the imperialists. Uh, but it's a satire, so it depicts this farm where the humans represented the imperialists and the animals, the pigs, the horses, the goats, uh, the chickens, they, they, they represented the, the socialists. And so one day the animals decide to get together to, to overthrow the humans. And they they uh, they promised this uh, this new farm of prosperity. But as many of you know, the story eventually on Animal Farm, some of the animals, especially those who weren't in charge, were not allowed to talk or think certain truths or facts that they were seeing with their own very eyes. Uh, they weren't allowed to discuss and do things about certain things they saw happening on the farm because some other animals have taken charge. And so you have that famous quote in Animal Farm saying, all animals are equal except some animals are more equal than, than others. So it's this person, George Orwell, who wrote Animal Farm, who said, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. We are in that territory today because we're going to be talking about things that people do not want to hear. Now, in preparing this message, I didn't know who was going to be here for worship. Um, and I would confess that even in myself, these are some things that maybe certain parts of myself and my heart are not wanting to hear. Just a brief background, I won't go into this very deep. My father and mother were both missionaries in Taiwan, and they both pastored a church, and they both preached. So this is personal to me. And so the Bible is very much today going to be telling us things that we do not want to hear. Maybe people, of course, people do not want to hear it, And maybe we ourselves may not want to hear. But pray for me. We're going to go forward anyway. Um, the verses that we read, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15, just a brief recap, mentions four instructions. First, that men everywhere must pray without wrath and doubting. Second, that women 
must adorn themselves modestly with godliness and good works. These two instructions we talked about last time. The third instruction, that women are not allowed to teach or have authority over a man. And then fourth, that women will be saved in childbearing. Today, we will focus on these last two instructions. Okay, so, so the four instructions, we're going to focus on the last two today. Just as in the previous time, we're going to talk about each of these in three different ways. First, we're going to become like robots. Uh, become, uh, well, if you want to put it this way, George Orwell was a journalist, and journalism back then meant reporting the facts as they are. Not giving commentary, not giving your, their own opinions, but reporting the facts as they are, even if people didn't like them. That's what journalism meant at one point. And so today we're going to be like that. We're going to report on what the words say and just what do the words of scripture say in themselves without regard to what other people might think, without regard to what we might think ourselves or what the culture might think. Second, we're going to talk about what is the biblical basis for these instructions. Are these instructions simply Paul's own opinions? Maybe prejudiced opinions? Are these instructions Paul's own uh, uh, understanding of his world as a man trapped in a, in a sexist and, and, and you know, uh, uh, unequal society? Or do these words of Paul have some biblical basis elsewhere in the Bible, which would give it even more authority? And then third, what is our challenge? Especially what is our cultural challenge for us today as we come to these verses? So let's talk about them. In verses 11 to 12, the Bible says a woman must learn in silence. Look with me. Again, at these verses, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. If we only focused on these words, uh, the, the teaching is actually very straightforward. There's no room for misinterpretation. You know, oftentimes, uh, Paul is said to be a very complicated writer. His sentence structure is very complicated. His grammar is very complicated. Even Peter at some point says, you know, some of Paul's teachings are hard to understand. This is not one of them. Uh, this is quite straightforward, clear. And actually, there's no room for misinterpretation of what Paul means by these words. Uh, the reason we know this is because Paul actually repeats himself. Uh, uh, several times. And so in scripture, whenever you have, you know, in a very few verses, several repetitions, you know, there's emphasis. For example, in verse 11, Paul mentions that women should learn in silence. And then in verse 12, Paul repeats himself saying, women must be in silence. That word silence means to be in quietness, to be in stillness. Um, actually, the word is very interesting. Uh, you, can, you can say that this is a noticeable silence, a deafening silence, if you will. Uh, this is the same word that's used in Acts 22, 
Acts 22 is when Paul has finally arrived to Jerusalem. This is Paul on his、uh, journey to Jerusalem, where he expects to be persecuted, jailed, and etc. Right? Actually, Jesus Himself appeared to Paul before then and said, "You're going, you know, you're going to be、uh, imprisoned in Jerusalem for 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 Jesus' sake." So in Acts 22,、uh, the, the the Romans are bringing Paul into the barracks. And the, the 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 Bible describes this huge mob coming and and, and trying to be violent with Paul. And Paul,、uh, if you remember, gets up on the steps and and says to the Jewish folks in Hebrew, he starts to give his testimony. And in Acts twenty two, the Bible says, and the whole crowd, the whole mob that was in a terror, they were silent. They became silent as Paul began to speak in Hebrew. So this is a noticeable silence, like when you walk into a library, and you immediately know, wow, things are silent. I, I better not drop my phone, okay? But that's repeated, verse eleven and twelve. In verse twelve, there's another repetition,、uh, the repetition of the negative, not and nor. I realize that in the in the New King James Version, it says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or." To have authority over a man, that second word "or" really should be the word "nor" in the、uh, in the original language. So there's the double negative. I do not negative permit a woman to teach, nor negative to have authority over a man.、Um, we know that、uh, when we're doing exegesis in Scripture, whenever there's a double negative, whenever the the, the author he doesn't just use one negative but uses two back to back, it's it's It, it's there for emphasis. Definitely not is is the meaning. And then in verse twelve,、uh, there's this little phrase that Paul uses. He says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority." He doesn't just come out to say it. He doesn't just come out to say women should not teach or have authority. He says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority." That phrase. Is an extra phrase. You don't really need it there to 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 make the point, okay? But he adds it there for authoritative emphasis. I do not permit is stronger than saying, you know, I do not permit this is stronger than saying don't do this, okay? Let me give you an example. When my wife and I imagine this, it went if my wife and I went shopping. And she sees this dress, and it's just too expensive. And she says, "Should I get it?" And I say, "No, honey, don't get it." Okay, that's that's one thing. But if I say to her, "I do not permit you to get it," I'm in trouble. Serious, Joe. I'm in trouble because then I'm asserting some kind of authority、yeah. over her that I probably don't have.、Yeah. Okay, but that's where Paul goes. He says, "I do not permit." Emphasis of authority. Those, that's what the words say. It's very clear, and there's no mistaking what Paul means by these words, what the Bible means by these words. In fact, it's very telling that if you look at all the objections to to this verse, all the objections, even the objections in church about women teaching, allowing women to teach in church, none of the objections objections object to the words themselves. They all admit. That the Bible actually says here that women are not allowed to teach. Their objection is about Paul. 
about his own personal prejudice and about or about his culture and his time. They object to, well, maybe here Paul has slipped in some of his, you know, uh, yeah, right, whatever you want to call it, right, chauvinism or his uh, his patriarchy, right, uh, or or he's just you know trapped in his time and he doesn't know how how else to think, right? Their objection is about that, but not many people object about the words. So that tells us that the words say that a woman is not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man. Of course, that means preaching, preaching and teaching in the context of church. That's what the words mean. How about the biblical reason? Well, before we get into the biblical reason, let me just say this. It's not necessary for us to provide the biblical reason, right? Especially because we talked about in Sunday school, uh, Paul sees his words as scripture, as the commandment of God, right? So Paul writing these words, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, should itself be enough, should itself be authoritative. However, if we wanted to say, go a step further and say, well, are there other parts of scripture that talk about this? Then let's go there. Actually, Paul himself provides the biblical reason. Okay, if you look at verses 13 to 14, 1 Timothy 2 verses 13 and 14, this is Paul's reasoning from other parts of scripture. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul actually gives us two reasons, two biblical reasons from other parts of scripture. First reason comes from creation, verse 13. Adam was formed first, then Eve. We know from scripture that that isn't just some random order that God created things. God created it and he had intention. He created man first so that man would have the leadership role in the family, but also in church. That's where we get the idea of headship, that men are, or the husband is the head of the wife. As it says in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 23, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. So, you know, it sets up a comparison. Right. Scripture does where we as members of the church, we acknowledge we have a head, which is Christ. Right. But then the Bible is saying like that, the wife is to consider her head, the husband, like the church considers Christ our head. So creation sets up this differentiation in roles where the man is the head and the woman is uh, in submission, uh, wives and husbands. But here, Paul applies that to the church in saying the man should be, men should be in leadership positions or in leadership roles in church and the women submissive. And one of the, uh, uh, one of the ways that plays out is in teaching, right? Because teaching is a form of leadership, right? A form of authority. And so because of the creational order, 
It ought to be men who are teaching and not women. That's the first biblical reason. The second biblical reason. And here's where uh, I'm going to warn us, uh, we get into some controversy. Okay, These are some deep weeds. Because I think most conservative, evangelical, maybe reformed churches or church members would accept the idea of headship. Okay, But then what Paul says next is, is quite puzzling. He basically says that the reason why men should be the ones teaching and not women was because it was the woman who was deceived first, not man. So not coming from creation, but from the fall. He reasons from the fall. He says Adam was not deceived first, but Eve. And we know this to be true, right? Genesis 3. Eve was deceived first. Now, usually when we read Genesis 3, we don't, we don't draw any more theological conclusions from that. We just say, well, it just happened, right? Eve just, you know, she was ha maybe wrong place, wrong time. Eve was just deceived first and, you know, wrong place, wrong time. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul takes that event where Eve was deceived first, and he reasons from that, that that has deeper theological implications about men and women. And if you're just being honest with the words, and this is the hard part for us to accept, Paul seems to imply that women are more likely to be deceived than men because of what happened in the fall. Women are more likely to be deceived, are more easily deceived than men. That is certainly the logic that's implied there. I tried to, to finagle this in some other way. You can't get away from what the words mean. Even if you said, well, it was just happenstance that, that Eve was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and, and so God doesn't want that to happen and, and anymore. And so, like, you know, the man should be the, the, the one safeguarding the, the, the teaching of the church and, and this, you know, the truth. You're still implying the same thing, right? That, that, that one side is more easily deceived than, than the other. So how can the Bible say this? How can you say that women are more easily deceived than men. Well, part of it comes from the words. The word deceived simply means to be deceived. It doesn't mean more sinful, okay? It doesn't mean less of a creature. It just means more easily deceived. In fact, the word actually in the original Greek means to be given over to distorted impressions, especially by appeal of the senses. Okay? It means uh, it, it's a sensual temptation. It, it's, a, it's a word that describes being deceived from reality because of some kind of assault on your senses. Think about Genesis 3, what happened to Eve. That's what happened to Eve. Satan did not theologically deceive Eve. Satan sensually deceived Eve. Oh, what a beautiful fruit. And Eve saw, indeed, it is a beautiful fruit. Good for food, all the senses. 
pleasing to the sight. Right? And that was how Eve was deceived. I asked my wife about this. I said, what do you think? You know, don't take my wife's opinion for authority, okay? But, but, but just, just as an illustration, I asked her, what do you think? She said, you know, there's a reason why the perfume industry is targeted towards women. There's why the shopping industry is targeted towards women. There's why when you see couples walking around in the mall and the man has bags, bags full of stuff, most of the stuff is for the women. There's a reason why perfume and cologne, men and women wear it differently for different reasons. Men wear cologne to attract the women because we know the truth that there is this sensory thing that will attract women. Whereas women wear perfume, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, women wear perfume any, any time in any place just to smell nice. And not only when they go out to have a date. Is that, I don't know. Certainly my wife does. Okay. There's a reason why sn uh, s uh, 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 carpet baggers and is the term snake oilsmen or, or they go after the wives more seriously in church uh one of our friends in Pres presbytery posts a lot about this um this uh, meditative spirituality okay assault on the senses right or removal of the senses or whatever holding hands in in in, in nature and in, in being out in the sun and, 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 and contemplative spirituality. There's a reason why it's all women. There's a reason why the authors and the, and the people leading that are women. And the reason why when, when I, as a man, look at that, I have no interest. Because I don't need that sensory. I don't need that sensory input. That doesn't appeal to me. So perhaps scripture is right. Scripture is talking to us about a deeper reality about the way God created us differently. Does this mean that men are never deceived? No, because Adam obviously was deceived. Says something about Adam and maybe his weakness, men's weakness to not senses, but women. Does this mean that men are better than women and they are somehow more loved or accepted by God? No. All have fallen short of God's glory. Does this mean that women are eternally doomed because they're always going to be doomed to be more deceived? No. Because as scripture says, we all have the word of God and the spirit of God, which gives us a way out in every temptation. And that's a verse addressed to Everybody. So each gender has their own weakness. We spoke before about how men struggle more with anger and doubt. Here we're talking about women who struggle more with sensual temptation. Okay, and the Bible addresses both. But that difference does mean that in terms of the teaching of Scripture and the safeguarding of it, the Bible says, because of the creational order and because of what happened in the fall, it should be men who authorize 
who, who exercise that authority, not women. So that's that teaching. The last instruction in our verses says, women will be saved through childbearing. Let me read the verse. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The key word here is the word in. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. That word actually means through. I don't know why they translate it this way. But that word actually means through. It's the Greek word dia, which means through something. Uh, it's a prepositional phrase that literally means going through something. You have Greek prepositional phrases that means over something, under something, to this side of something, in something, outside of something. And then you have a word that means through something. That's the word that's used here. Uh, for example, when I'm in a park, I'm just in a park. But when I'm walking through a park, that's the word that's used here, through. Okay, so a better translation would be, nevertheless, you will be saved through... Childbearing, meaning whatever situation in, as you move through this situation, this is what you do. And this is what it means. That in the life of salvation, okay, the role of the woman as she moves through this life of salvation, her main role, her main job is in childbearing. And that word childbearing doesn't just mean the physical act of giving birth to a person, uh, that, that word actually is, is larger. It means being a mother, basically. Raising children, being a mother. We make this distinction about through because we don't want to confuse through and by. All right, for example, Ephesians 2. We all know Ephesians 2. We are saved by grace alone. So salvation is by grace alone. We're not saying here that salvation is by childbearing. There's a big difference because if we were to say salvation was by childbearing, uh, that's a form of works righteousness. And second, for all those folks, right? Children come from God, don't they? So for all those women who are not able to have children or don't have children, how about, what about them? God, right? God gives children. So if God doesn't give children, what does that mean about you know, salvation. Um, and not only that, the, the, the grammatical structure is different. Okay, in Ephesians 2, when it says uh, we are saved by grace alone, um, the, the, the grammar is very different. It doesn't use that through word. Still, what does this mean? Well, in a nutshell, remember the context. Okay, we've just talked about how Women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority in the church. And so the natural question is, well, what can women do? Here's the answer, right? Women in their life of salvation, right? The most important work that they can do is to raise children, especially in their family, right? To raise children up in the Lord. That is what it means by the rest of that verse. If she does it in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. 
What is the biblical basis? Are there other parts of scripture that talk about this? Yes. Titus 2 verses 4 to 5. The Bible says, admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Well, you say, well, that's Paul again. Okay, this is just Paul being, you know, his, his, his chauvinistic self. Okay, how about Proverbs 31? Paul didn't write Proverbs 31, right? We talked about this last time where Proverbs 31 talks about the honorable woman. If you look at the characteristics of Proverbs 31, many of them, if not all of them, not all of them, but the majority of them have to deal with the woman raising her family well. She provides food for her household. She gets up at night to do that. She, she provides clothing for her household, even when it's cold. You know, so, so a lot of the, these, these you know, characteristics of, of Proverbs 31 talk about childbearing in that broader sense of being a mother. You know, it's interesting. We, we, we talked today uh, before worship about, you know, the, the, the root of social ills. And where do we end up talking about the parents, right? I mean, really, that, that, that's where things begin for children. Good and evil begins. They're, they're, they're discerning about good and evil. And they're acting out on good or evil begins in the house. And it's very hard for a child to discern good and evil and to do good and evil if they don't have good parenting or good parents at home, stable family life. But I'll also say this. Yes, it's important for the dad to be home. And obviously, yes, it's important for the husband to be the head of the household. Okay. But there's just a different way that women are in the house when they nurture and teach the children. There's a difference. I can tell the difference when I'm at home between my son and me and between my son and my wife. Even if for the simple fact that I'm not in the house most of the time because I have to work. But my wife is. She has such a profound impact on him because he's with her all the time. I do want to talk about this uh, as, we, as we begin to conclude. Do want to talk about grace for women. And this is part of the reason why we brought up Romans 16. Okay, let me, let me read Romans 16 again, verses 1 to 2. Where Paul, as he's uh, uh, greeting the Romans, he ends, he concludes his letter by, by mentioning a couple of co-workers. The first one is a woman. He says, a commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. There is some controversy in this verse because in verse one, when Paul says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant, that word servant in the original language, you know this, George, right? Is the word diakonos. Oh, goodness. Diakonos is where we get our word deacon. So is Paul saying Phoebe's a deacon? 
And so if Paul's saying Phoebe's a deacon, how can Paul say this here? He's contradicting himself. Let's say this. The word diakonos has a very broad meaning and a specific meaning. And the way you tell the broad meaning and the specific meaning is by context. Okay? The broad meaning just means serve. There's two main words in the Greek for serve. One is diakonos, to serve, as in a servant. And one is slave, doulos, a slave. It's very different than the word to serve. There's no in-between word. It just means diakonos, your servant, or your slave. Okay? And those are the two main words used in the New Testament for the servant type of person. So diakonos has a broad meaning as a servant, anyone who serves. In fact, Paul sometimes refers to himself as diakonos, as a servant of God, of Christ, of the gospel. Okay? When a word is used, it's not always necessary to read the specific meaning into every context. Because otherwise you get confusion. Right? So when Paul says of himself, I am a servant of Christ and I am a servant of God, and I am a servant of the gospel, he's not saying, I'm a deacon. Because otherwise, Paul is confused. Are you a deacon or are you an apostle? Are you a deacon or are you an elder? Right? Okay? So it's not necessary to read the specific meaning, deacon, into every single text. It depends on context. Okay? When the context is, the Bible is talking about the qualifications of an office, then that word means deacon, the office of deacon. But then when the Bible doesn't mention some context and it just says this is a person who's serving, it means serving. So Phoebe was just serving in church. As many women do and should serve in church. But I bring this verse up to point out how gifted she was. How much respect the church should give her. And how much support and encouragement the church should be giving her. She's gifted in that she's mentioned first. Many scholars actually believe that the letter to the Romans was delivered by Phoebe to the Romans. So she's not only gifted, she's also trusted. Paul trusts her so much to let her do this very important job. She is to be respected by the church because Paul instructs the church receive her in a manner worthy of the saints. So she's not some second class citizen. She is to be respected in a manner worthy of the saints. In fact, the church is to support and encourage her in ministry. Paul says, assist her in whatever business she has need of you. Okay. So Phoebe was not holding some office of elder or deacon, but she was still serving in church. And Paul says, this is very important. You respect her, you encourage her, you support her in that. And finally, if not mostly, Paul calls her his helper. She has been a helper of many and of myself also. This word means prostatus, which sound like a lot like our word for prosthesis, right? Which is when you lose a limb or lose a leg, you have a prosthesis to help you stand, to help you walk. And without the prosthesis, what? You can't stand and you can't walk. And so that is how important Phoebe is to Paul. She is his prosthesis. 
his helper. You know, there, it's a wonderful word. There you get the, not only the order of creation, right? Paul is Paul and Phoebe is the helper. Phoebe is not over Paul. So there's some sort of, you know, authority and submission there. Okay. But nevertheless, she is essential. Without Phoebe, Paul can't work. She's the helper. So we say all of this to say, God does use women, very importantly. This is why we read that part in Judges, right? Was God used Deborah mightily, okay? But it also doesn't mean that this is the way that, that all are equal in terms of function and office. Because even in that part in Judges, where Deborah is a prophetess, it's very clear that Barak is afraid to go to war without Deborah. And Deborah rebukes him, saying, you should be the one going to war. And actually, what she says is actually quite interesting. She says, have you not heard? Barak, aren't you aware of God's word that you must go to war? She doesn't just tell him prophets. She, she says, haven't you heard of this as a man? You know, I think part of what's going on in Judges is the downward spiral of Israel. And so they've not had any male leadership at all. And so that's why Deborah has to come in to fill the void. And God can certainly work through that. Okay. But the problem is still there. And Deborah actually says it. Right. You should be the one doing this. You should be going to battle alone. And because you're asking me because you're too afraid to lead, you're not going to get the glory. And of course, we know what happened. She doesn't get the glory. The cultural challenge. I'm going to end with this. The cultural challenge is, are we going to listen to scripture or are we going to listen to culture? Because most of the objection to these verses, yes, eventually they become theological, but the starting point always is culture. It always works like this, where if somebody objects to these teachings, especially about women teaching in church, it always comes from a place of, well, that's obviously patriarchal and sexist because the culture says it's patriarchal and sexist. So how do we bend scripture to fit our cultural narrative? I mean, that's, that's turning the world upside down where now you've got culture as God and the scripture as subservient to the culture. Whereas for us, the challenge for us is to put scripture on top. And to have a posture of humility, humility underneath scripture. That's why we're going to read Psalm 131. Because Psalm 131 is a psalm of humility. You'll notice in the uh, inscription of Psalm 131 that this is a psalm of ascent. Uh Starting from, I believe, Psalm 125 and, on, uh, no, 120, that whole section, starting from 120 and onwards, is, is, a, is, a, is a group of psalms called the Psalm of Ascent. A Psalm of Ascent was a psalm that pilgrims making their way up to the temple would recite as they were going to the temple for their yearly pilgrimage. And it's called a Song of Ascent because you literally have to climb a mountain, Mount Zion, in order to get up to the temple. So as you're climbing up, 
right? You're, 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 you're meditating, you're, refle- you're reflecting on these psalms. And Psalm 131 is a psalm of ascent. So you're consciously approaching the presence of God. And the reflection here is, Lord, help me to not be haughty. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Sometimes I think that's the attitude we must have with these difficult verses is, God, I don't understand everything that you're saying in here. Ah, It's hard for me to accept, but I trust you because some things are just too profound for me. Verse 2, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a winged child is with his mother. Like a winged child is my soul within me. Like a child depends on his mother. Now, I certainly know this as having a young one. As my son depends on me to shape his reality. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know everything. He depends on me to, to, to shape and, and, and help him with reality. And he has to trust me about that, right? But just like that, we are to trust God like a weaned child. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Part of the reasons why people object to this teaching is that they don't trust the Lord. They don't trust God. When there's an empty pulpit, when there's a, when there's a ministry of preaching, missionaries uh, teaching in the church and nobody, no man is there to fill the pulpit. They, they turn to a woman because they don't trust God enough to say, we're going to wait. We're going to wait until the right man comes along. And so they find the next person who happens to be a woman. They fill the position. Deacons, elders, same thing. So lack of trust in God. It's, util- it's utilitarianism, but it's not faith. It's not faith. May God give us the faith, the, the requisite humility before his word and the necessary hope in him in order for us to carry out this teaching. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your word and we do confess that this is, uh, for myself, even as I'm preaching it, it is one of the harder passages that I've had to preach. Uh, Not because it's exegetically hard or theologically hard, but culturally, uh, it it is not something that's very accepted in our culture. And a lot of that seeps into ourselves and perhaps the reason why we might recoil at these teachings. But Father, we, we thank you for giving us the truth it's not your word that's to, that needs to reform, but our hearts that needs to be conformed to your word. So help us in our unbelief to grasp a hold of your truth and to be willing to submit to it, to be humble underneath it, and to put our trust in you. That as we obey you, you will bless us. You will bless our church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing I get.